Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hi, everybody. It's February the 13th. And it's time for our call. I hope you all had a good week so far. Tonight, our special guest speaker is Adele Weiss. You've heard him before. He's backed by popular demand. Hi, Adele. Hi, Angela. Good am, I, am I saying your name right? Uh, Weiss. That's all right. Weiss. Sorry about that. Adele no Weiss. problem. <laughs> I think I did that. No, I did. I got it right the last time. <laughs> oh well. How are you and um, your your entre- your crew, I should say, doing over there? Well, we're staying quite busy. Uh, most of them are in bed asleep right now. It's roughly, what, about 3 in the morning here in Paris. Oh, but, gosh. But um, I, again, will do my best to keep my eyelids up and my voice going here because we're uh, in a busy process right now of traveling along a lot of cities in, in Europe, talking to Americans over here. Oh, sounds like fun. Jet setting. <laughs> well, uh, certainly the Eurail pass is helpful. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll bet. Move your mouth. Uh, they, they, they've got, they do, they put some planning into their rail lines over there. I'm sure, not like here. <laughs> but um, regardless, um, why don't you go ahead and get started with uh, your talk, your talk for tonight? All right, Angela. Thank you, and uh, we'll have some time for Q and A. Hopefully, afterwards, my voice holds up, and okay. we'll go ahead and get started. All right. Uh, good. The goal in tonight's presentation is, first of all, to keep everything as simple as possible. Now, this is a pretty complex field, so my efforts may not be successful, but I'll certainly try. The goal tonight, again, in keeping it successful, is, or I should say as simple as possible, is to help people understand the jurisdiction issues that are in context of statutory laws created by the government. Again, this is quite a complex field of endeavor for many people. And each of you as free moral agents must make up your own mind about the information presented as to how you will interpret it, choose to use it, or not. Henri Bergson, a French philosopher, said, the eye sees only what the mind is prepared to comprehend. A closed mind blocks the vision. So I encourage you to keep your mind open tonight. Some of these concepts may be a little new, may be a little bit different twists. This information presented tonight is for the use of the people that are listening. Uh, Tonight's commentary is not designed to be a debate. It's an effort to show you some of the areas that may hopefully be of help or guidance to you in your journey in making right decisions for your particular needs and situation. My warning, first of all, to each of you is to never take anyone's word for anything in a complex field such as this. And yes, that includes my own comments. Prove everything to yourself. Learn the law. And when you look at other people out there, and hopefully you're doing that because there's a lot of good information out there, do the same with them. Make sure you don't make presumptions. Learn the law. Keep everything on that focus, and I think you'll come out in a fine shape. 
I started my journey in this area over two decades ago, and quite honestly, I was rather naive at the time, looking back on it, and I depended on others to shed their light. And there were many who were not around today for various reasons, uh, and they, I think, were very, very good people. But each of them, in my opinion, were trying their best to find the solutions and to share them as they understood them. Many, of course, made mistakes. None of us are error-free, unfortunately. <laughs> but the key is, is that when I started looking at some of their mistakes, uh, I realized that mistakes are really not an issue because throwing verbal stones at people for making mistakes is really not the purpose. And if you understand the fact that people like Edison went through a process of mistakes before he ever invented the incandescent light bulb. So the goal is to learn from the mistakes and not repeat them. And I stand on the shoulders of others who've gone before me, and quite honestly, the idea, and I'm trying to express my appreciation for it, it's what I'm leaning toward right now, is that if you realize the importance of not repeating the same mistakes, hopefully your path will be much shorter. And that's the goal. So again, I stand on the shoulders of others who have gone before me. I applaud them for their efforts, taking the risks that they did to help Americans with a lot of the information, and in many cases, showed us what not to do. Okay, I'm a pragmatist and have continually looked for solutions, and it's been a pretty long journey to get to the point that I'm at. Um, I try to resolve situations related to federal income taxation but not from a position of being a tax protester and certainly not a patriot. Uh, those perspectives are not something that I choose to deal with. I have felt for a long time, and certainly from the beginning, that the answers to all the questions that people are confronted with deal primarily with federal statutes and regulations. The answers are there, and that's where you have to look, and that's what I've tried to accomplish. Now, for those who want a deeper background from tonight's presentation, I have a book it's called The Galileo Paradigm. You can go to vanguardian.org and pull it up, or you can go to our website, www.weissparis.com. Uh, there's other websites out there like SEDM that are very good websites if you want to delve into this subject in a deeper and certainly more time-intense manner. Now, <clears throat> what is presented tonight is basically information that you're free to do with as you see fit. All of us at Weiss Paris, excuse me, at Weiss Associates, uh, we don't offer legal advice. We're not attorneys. Our paralegal backgrounds, however, started this journey years ago, and we tried to start clearing out the cobwebs from this confusing maze that was created by wordsmiths and the government. For those seeking a simple path where you don't have to spend a lot of time studying, there is one solution that you can consider. And to accomplish this, you would need to acquire a second citizenship and then look at expatriation from the Constitutional Republic. Today, there's a lot of people doing just that. Now, it is a lot simpler process, and one consideration is that you literally can become a citizen of another country and move forward in your life. Um, if you learn how to be a perpetual tourist, in structuring your personal and business affairs, you can be totally free of all the entanglements that exist for American nationals today. The goal is to have different jurisdictions in which you operate in, and I have accomplished that for myself. And I have not expatriated, but that is an option that's available. 
So you need more options this day and time than ever. So keep that in your mind. If this becomes too overwhelming and you have the resources and the time and the inclination, look at other countries where you might find a better home, a longer and better lifestyle. Okay, for many, again, that's not possible. In those cases, American nationals, and I will define the term American nationals shortly, they need a pragmatic solution or solutions to move forward. It's, in, it is my personal opinion that the, those remaining in the USSA will be there and facing more challenges as each year go by. And quite honestly, there is a tremendous amount of information being reported in the world, world press that is highlighting the concern that's on the minds of a lot of Americans about the continued existence of the con Constitution. So we'll see how that turns out. But nonetheless, these are issues that are current in today's press. Just a little housekeeping for those of you after this presentation, if you desire to contact us, uh, please, first of all, read our Q&A section about our services and try to find the answers there. We're more than happy to respond to questions. However, I would ask that you be precise, only list three questions per email because we have a large volume that's currently underway every day. We work four days and we have full 14-hour days right now. So it's, it's putting a burden on us, but we're hopeful that we're going to be able to increase the staff shortly. But right now, that's where we're at, and we appreciate your help and help letting us help you better by keeping your sentences short, precise, and only three questions per email. Uh, questions, if you will, please direct them only to the services that we offer. Uh, there's a lot of issues out there for a lot of people in different areas, but we cannot be the be-all and end-all in all these other areas. So limit your questions, if you would, again, just to the areas where we have services. Um, let's see. Please go to the website. Again, if you have any questions about tonight, we've got a lot of information in our resource center there, and a lot of it can be downloaded for you to study at your leisure, and we encourage you to do that. Now, when people come to us to express interest in becoming a client, we do not accept everyone that inquires. We have strict criteria that must be adhered to, and we identify that. Our fees that we do charge are modest, at least we believe they're modest, and the payback period and return on investments for those clients, receiving the lifetime benefit that accrues with each of these areas, we feel that our fees are tremendously small. We had a number of issues at the beginning to charge huge amounts because I hired a marketing research firm and they told us to charge $3,750 and I just knew that was not going to be feasible. I wanted to help people not impair them. Our fees are designed so that they're modest. It, the, the high end is not going to be an issue. Now, we chose not to take the approach of annual fees because we feel that over a five-year period, if you charge somewhere around $200 a year or somewhere close to that number, that on an annual basis over five years, our fees are going to be as comparable, if not less expensive. And we don't have annual fees, so we keep it as simple as we can for everybody. Now, we're not designed to please everyone, but for those who need our assistance, they must first start learning something about the law at some level. Everybody has a different starting point, so obviously with a broad audience of tonight, there's people that are at different levels of knowledge. Generally speaking, there will be some people that are in the audience that may have emergency needs, and we provide our best efforts to assist them if they meet our strict criteria and warn them that there is not a magic pill. 
There never has been. There never will be. It takes a lot of work and a little commitment of time, but it doesn't take two or three years of that. It can be done with a reasonable amount of effort, and we'll move you right through the process and give you instructions on what to do and how to do it. Uh, all of our clients know that we stress education, and we continue to do that continually. Okay, I'll close with this basic housekeeping overview. I want to start with a, a quote um, by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He said, governments never do anything by accident. If government does something, you can bet it was carefully planned. And that is the thrust of tonight's activity. Just to give you a quick overview in some of the areas of who we are for some people that may be listening for the first time, um, let there be no doubt, first of all, that the Internal Revenue Code statutory laws are indeed lawful, and they should be respected by those upon which the statutory laws are applicable. That's right. The Internal Revenue Code is not unconstitutional. It is not unlawful for those upon whom the laws apply. Now, the Internal Revenue Code has been levied upon the following group, and these are generally the categories. There may be an additional one that I've overlooked, but in putting together, these are a pretty good representative sample of all what you would call U.S. taxpayers. First of all, are public officers, and meaning basically federal workers, federal employees, wherever they're located. Second would be statutory creations of the national government, such as U.S. persons. If you are a U.S. person, you're a U.S. taxpayer. You should and must pay your tax. Those engaged in commercial activity, franchises, legal fictions with the U.S. government, you're deriving income, you're a taxpayer. Those who operate in a representative capacity in behalf of and for the benefit of the national government and or derive income that is effectively connected with a statutory trade or business in the District of Columbia, you're a taxpayer. For those who have a physical or statutory domicile, abode, or residence, whatever you choose to call it, within the District of Columbia, you are a taxpayer. If you are a U.S. resident alien from a foreign country, you are a taxpayer. And those who are non-resident aliens, meaning American nationals, which I'll go into shortly, who have made an election to allow their income to be taxed or treated like that of a U.S. resident alien, you also are a taxpayer. Now, what I'm trying to focus on here is the broad field in a very short window of time. Our services, again, are based on knowledge of the federal statutes and regulations. We try to provide results-oriented solutions for select American nationals. All clients must accept our strict criteria again. I think you're aware from basically understanding that there's two groups. There's taxpayers and lawful non-taxpayers. And we're only going to address the lawful non-taxpayer group tonight because we have nothing to do and have no interest in interfering with those who have a lawful legal obligation to file and pay the federal income tax where it is applicable for those that I just mentioned. We're strong privacy advocates. We're an independent firm. And we provide awareness and application for the options provided to all American nationals by the U.S. Congress. We do not affiliate with or have any nexus with any other organization. So in summary, we deal only with lawful non-taxpayers, which we refer to as American nationals. We base everything we do on federal laws, 
meaning statutes and regulations, legal opinions by federal attorneys, and the Constitution. We are not involved with those who are tax protesters, tax cheats, tax evaders. Of course, they can, that's the only group that can be labeled with that term anyway. We are not involved with those claiming any illegality of the federal income tax, and we are most definitely not involved with those who are anti-government. That is not our purpose. That is not our goal. We have no affiliation with any of those. All right. Hopefully that's helped to give you some background about who we are and what we do. American national. This is a term. It's a non-statutory term created so that we can express the following three types of people in the Constitutional Republic. Those who were born in one of the 50 states of the Union is the first. So when we use the term American national, we're saying we're indicating, first of all, you may have been born in one of the 50 states of the Union. Number two, you may have been born to parents, of which at least one of them was born in the 50 states. Or number three, you might be an American national because you were naturalized into the Constitutional Republic, the 50 states of the Union. Now, you might ask, well, why did you create another term or a different term called American national? Well, there's a lot of confusion because if you read the Constitution, it refers routinely to citizens of the United States. And the federal government, the national government, uses in their statutes U period, S period, citizen. These are very similar terms, similar sounding terms, but they have great differences in definition. So when you deal with a term that is non-statutory and you're trying to clarify and distinguish yourself, it's far simpler to avoid using citizen of the United States, U period, S period citizens, because if you're not specific in identifying which definition you're using, it does indeed get confusing and confusing quite quickly. There's no illegality, by the way, in identifying yourself or correcting any form which asked, are you a U.S. citizen? You can define the term. As of this very day, the last I've seen, there is not any definition on any form SS-5 application for a Social Security number that identifies what their term U.S. citizen means. Of course, you can look it up under 8 U.S.C. 1401A and find that definition. And if you want to distinguish what it is and separate yourself from it, you have to use a different way of doing so. If you have an option with the box other, you can do that. If you don't, you have to actually notify by drawing a circle around it or putting a star or something to draw attention to the fact and then somewhere on that paper define the term so that you do not fall into the definitions used by the national government. You need to segregate yourself and stop using that terminology. It will help you understand things also a lot cleaner and clearer. Now, there's a lot of presumptions, especially presumptions made by the press. And here's just a couple examples I pulled out uh, over here in Europe. That, uh, Swiss Info has a lot of stuff that they put out. In some of the publications or articles they write, they make statements like all Americans are subject to the U.S. tax regime no matter where they live. All Americans are U.S. persons as defined by the Internal Revenue Code and must report their worldwide income on their U.S. tax return. And lately, there's uh, all Americans must report their foreign assets on Form 8938. Now, the first question is, all of this is truly stated, but where did all this come from? 
And also, is it a statement of the truth? Well, a lot of this comes mainly from presumptions. Presumptions made by these people that write these articles, and they're perpetuating a process, and they have never taken the time to study the law themselves. They're journalists, and they take the easy way, and they write their article, and they're off doing something else. Now, here's part of the problem with presumptions, and I quote Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State. It is not a matter of what is true that counts, but a matter of what is perceived to be true. And H.L. Mencken said it better. Nations get along with others by not telling the truth, but by lying gracefully. So the status quo is always easier to believe because you're already comfortable with it. And the old presumptions in most situations are rarely challenged. Okay, um, there's a lot of issues that are coming out today. You constantly see in the press um, different ideas, facts, allegations, deliberately put together to further promote one's cause or to damage an opposing cause. And this is basically propaganda. Now, when I was younger, I thought propaganda was a Russian word. But propaganda was a definitely an American word. It started with Edward Bernays and Walter Lippmann. They were the backbone for the Creel Commission under the Woodrow Wilson administration. And they were very impactful during World War One on the German military. And as a result, a guy named Adolf Hitler picked up on it, and he and Joseph Goebbels, I think, took it up a notch or two. Okay, uh, American nationals. These are lawful non-taxpayers because they're neither the subject nor the object of federal revenue laws. Now, they are unless they work for the national government. So if you're an American national and you've chosen to work for the national government and you feel that that's an honorable thing to do, there's no doubt in your mind that's what you did and that was the reason, then nobody should criticize you. Um, also, American nationals who make voluntary elections to allow their income to be taxed like that as a U.S. resident alien. That is the exception to the statement. But otherwise, the bulk of the population in the 50 states of the Union are neither the subject nor object of federal revenue laws. But we haven't been aware of that in this detailed format as hopefully you'll see tonight. There are no presumptions. There are laws. And if you look at certain facts that exist in the laws, I think some of this will become clear and hopefully we'll accomplish some of that objective tonight. Now, federal laws enacted by the Congress, the first one we'll talk about will be the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment as well as the 16th, 16th Amendment. And you're going to see some very important aspects of that and we will carry that throughout every part of our discussion tonight. Also, there's three main Supreme Court decisions. For those of you who are well-versed in this field, these are redundant. For those of you who are not, the first one is Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust. And if you want the sites, you can send us an email and I will give you the sites. The next one is Keha versus U.S., Foley Brothers, Inc. versus Filardo. Economy, Plumbing, and Heating versus U.S. Now, this is a, a appellate court level uh, case. Then there's statutes. The Treasury Department is Title 31, Section 321, D1, D2 basically says, and I'm summarizing, so allow me a little bit of latitude in paraphrasing, 
but that are saying basically federal income taxes are gifts or bequests made payable to the United States, the national government. And that's how they view them. Then there's 26 CFR 1.871-1A, and it basically highlights the fact for those non-resident alien individuals, meaning American nationals, which I will go into in a short, brief moment, no income from public office in the District of Columbia, you don't have any tax liability. Okay, we've covered a lot in a short time, and I'll keep going here. Let me get my next set of notes. Um, we're going to move right into the 16th Amendment. Now, before I actually do that, I'd like to just highlight the comments from the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment. Just as a little bit of a background, any legis legislative body that meets, they will write the intent of the law so that bodies that convene afterwards will be able to read the who, what, where, when, and why of what that law was all about. So there is a purpose behind the intent to help bodies that convene after they have written the law to understand what was done and why. Now, this is one of the key comments that came out of the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment. It is on our resource center on our website, and if you want to acquire it, please do so. But I read and I quote President Taft, I therefore recommend to the Congress that both houses, by a two-thirds vote, shall propose an amendment to the Constitution conferring the power to levy an income tax upon the national government without apportionment among the states in proportion to population. Two key things that are really important to focus on in this statement. Number one, who was the federal income tax levied upon? It was levied upon the national government. Now, the national government that they're referring to are not the monuments or the buildings, of course. That would be silly. It is identifying the public offices that the U.S. Congress has created. All those public offices now come with a tax, if you will. And when you hold a particular government office, you are the fiduciary for that imposed liability. The other thing that they accomplished was that they passed this Income Tax Act without regard to apportionment. Now, if anybody is a constitutional scholar or has an interest in the Constitution, you will be very familiar with the rule of apportionment based on the census. And this is a critical issue. A lot of people have overlooked this and not purposely, but maybe they just were in a hurry for some reason and they didn't quite get the full understanding behind it. But let me just read to you the section right out of legislative intent of the 16th Amendment. And of course, this was created in 1909 about a deficit that supposedly existed back then, and that was their reason for trying to pass this. And the U.S. Supreme Court decision, Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust, 157 U.S. 429, was held by the Supreme Court to be a direct tax and therefore not within the power of the federal government to impose unless apportioned among the states, the several states, in according to population. All right, you have to think about that for just a moment. For the first time, the Income Tax Act of 1894, which was their first effort, basically was torn apart by the Supreme Court because they were looking at a direct tax, they did not use the rule of apportionment, and therefore, the Supreme Court denied, and this is words right from the president, William H. Taft, in his letter dated June 16, 1909, 
It is published in the Congressional Record of the United States Senate. Not the House, but the United States Senate. Okay. Now, he went on to state uh, that the decision of the Supreme Court deprived the national government of a power. Now, they felt, as he continues on, that they had the right, they had the ability to do this. But they were, he's very clear that he said that the Supreme Court denied the national government of this power to impose an income tax directly upon the American people. That's why when he stated, I therefore recommend by two-thirds vote of both houses to levy the income tax upon the national government without apportionment, he identified not only that they were doing just what the Supreme Court said they could not do, and the reason that they were successful and had no issue and had never had any issue since was that they taxed the national government, the public offices, and for the first time, you clearly see a difference in jurisdiction because in the District of Columbia, evidenced by this legislative intent written by President Taft, you see very clearly that they do not have to adhere to the Constitution. As such, the Constitution is not the law of the land in the District of Columbia. They have their own exclusive sovereign monarchical jurisdiction, if you will. They're a municipality. And the Constitution, who they pledge an oath of allegiance to protect and defend, has no full force and effect of law inside the District of Columbia. And this, again, is based on the fact that the Supreme Court did not overthrow this attempt with the 16th Amendment, which they did in 1894, or excuse me, 1895. Okay, so the constitutional taxation and apportionment, those are two key issues that you need to lock in on. So when you start thinking about jurisdiction, the jurisdiction for the application of the federal income tax is only within the District of Columbia and U.S. territories. And that is the jurisdiction that it is appropriate and was designed to apply toward. Now, if you've read the Bruce Shaver decision and some of the others out there, you will see very clearly, and I'm paraphrasing, that the government created no new form of tax upon the American people, okay? Because the jurisdiction was D.C. and not the 50 states of the Union. They didn't use apportionment, therefore they couldn't apply it to the 50 states of the Union. And if they had, it would have been a tax, uh, attached to the state legislatures. It would have been a one-time tax, and they rarely, if ever, use that type of a tax because the government likes to have recurring annual taxation. Okay, uh, I spent enough time on apportionment and stuff like that, but uh, I think you get the idea. Now, if you get nothing out of this, keep in mind the two things. The fact that jurisdiction is important and that the tax is levied only upon the national government. Those who are engaged in a trade or business, the performance of the functions of a public office within the District of Columbia. All right. Uh, let's see. I'm going to try to skip through some of these things. Um, let me just give you some little background on CAHA versus the United States, and I quote, the laws of Congress in respect of those matters do not, and they're talking about constitutionally delegated powers, do not extend into the territorial limits of the states, of the Union is what they're talking about, but have force only in the District of Columbia and other places that are within the exclusive jurisdiction of the national government. 
Notice the words exclusive jurisdiction. We're going to see this again later on in tonight's discussion. Foley Brothers, Inc. versus Filardo. And again, I'll give you the sites if you send us an email if you want them. Um, it is, a, and I quote, it's a well-established principle of law that all federal regulation applies only within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States, again, the District of Columbia, unless a contrary intent appears. And the only way that contrary intent appears can be by publishing the implementing regulation in the Federal Register. Okay. Let's see if there's anything I've overlooked. I just want to make sure we've covered this as a good broad overview. Okay, I think we're good on that part of it. Um, we'll start looking at jurisdiction a little bit more in detail. Okay. Um, first of all, a lot of people are not aware that the government is a corporation. I don't know the real significance about introducing that tonight other than the fact that people generally don't realize that. And if you stop and think about some of the statutes and regulations, it does start to make a little more sense. Because when you think of items that are subject to, when you see the word subject to an exclusive jurisdiction, you realize they're talking about this corporation called the United States, the national government. Some people call it the federal government. It just depends on the, the different structure of where you're addressing the term. But the con excuse me, the government is a corporation, and it's very clear. And there's a lot of sites there if you want that. I can provide that for you as well. Now, there's a, an attorney. His name is Kenneth R. Thomas. And his letter is on our resource center as well. And he basically illustrates these two jurisdictions in his legal opinion letter. And he basically, and I quote, among these many powers, Congress has been granted authority to exercise exclusive jurisdiction, there it is again, over the District of Columbia. It should be noted, however, that there is no similar clause in the Constitution that gives Congress authority to exercise exclusive jurisdiction over the states. In his last sentence that I want to read to you, when Congress passes a law, there is no requirement under the Constitution that Congress identify the nature and source of its authority. Now, one of the best letter-writing campaigns that I could think anybody get engaged in would be to start petitioning the government to identify the jurisdiction on every single piece of legislative activity they put together, legislative bills, documents that pertain to one jurisdiction or the other. The only way you're going to see <coughs> excuse me, or understand jurisdiction as far as a legal context, identifying, for example, an act of Congress, let's say, like the latest one, the Affordable Care Act or the Patriot Act or the Military Commission Act, to find out what jurisdiction they're applicable toward, they don't identify it on the legislation which they should. So if every legislative bill of Congress had to have the jurisdiction, the 50 states of the union, and if they had left it off, it would mean it only applies to the 50 states, excuse me, the District of Columbia. Now, you would then start seeing, especially if you made them go back retroactively, back to the very beginning and identify the jurisdiction, you would probably find out that very, very few of their laws, their legislative acts of Congress, extend outside the District of Columbia. 
but I don't know that for a fact because I have not made that effort, but I'm guessing that would be the case. Okay, so um, if you start thinking of this in context, these two jurisdictions, the 50 states of the Union, you start thinking of the District of Columbia as separate jurisdictions. Now, today we know that most, if not all, will actually probably say the vast majority of Americans have been engaged in filing income tax returns. Uh, there's been a very successful propaganda scheme that has occurred. Uh, the message has gotten well received and broadcast. Americans have not sought to really try to understand the laws as well as they perhaps should. Uh, today it's becoming far easier with the internet and hopefully this will continue to improve. Again, we're not anti-government in any of the stuff we're saying. But if you start realizing that it's the responsibility of the American nationals, the people in this constitutional republic, to keep the government from falling into error, then that is the purpose for doing what we're doing. Now, there is a section in the law, excuse me, the Yale Law Journal. This was back in 1945, of all things. And the site is 54 Yale Law Journal, 879 in the year 1945. And I quote, federal jurisdiction to income taxes in a given case is theoretically predicated on the taxpayer's connection with the United States, meaning the national government, and they're talking about the statutory United States, in at least one of three ways, by citizenship, by residence, by source of income. Now, since by definition, the taxation of non-resident aliens must always rest upon the last basis alone. So we're talking about source of income. Now, this is the Yale Law Journal. Okay, it's not anything that's published by the U.S. Congress, but these guys are very good students, and these are the ones that help write the laws that come out of these Ivy League schools. Okay, so why the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment? Because if you start looking at the source of income, then if they levied the income tax, as we've read in the 16th Amendment, in the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment in particular, you will see that the source of income has to be derived from the fact that the income tax was levied upon the national government, the public offices there. And the jurisdiction is, again, the District of Columbia. So all of this goes together quite nicely. There's also a map that was created by the 63rd Congress. And it's a map of what is called the District of Columbia and U.S. territories and possessions and commonwealths and states in free association. If you look at this, you'll see the word state and United States when used in this section. Uh, let's see. It means uh, the territory, Alaska, District of Columbia, and so forth. This was when Alaska and Hawaii were territories. But they outline the District of Columbia, American Samoa, Guam, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Midway, and so forth. They don't mention any of the 50 states of the Union. So as a result, without thinking about it many times, we don't think of the District of Columbia as being a foreign state, a foreign jurisdiction, but indeed it truly is. And this map produced by the 63rd Congress, if I had it right, yes, 63rd Congress, uh, it's available again on our resource center. Now, one of the things that came out of all of the litigation uh, that took place when Taft left the presidency is everyone should probably realize he became a Supreme Court justice. And there was a case that 
is quite profound today that has an impact, and it took place in 1924. It's Cook versus Tate, 265 U.S. 47. And you start realizing the basic question, how did the national government gain control over this Mr. Cook? He was making, I think, yachts or something like that in Mexico. And somehow he got tied into litigation issues. I don't know the full background on it. But the, the main issue was that he was the plaintiff, and he stated that he was the citizen of the United States. Mr. Cook declared that. And as a statutory U.S. citizen, the domicile was in the United States, meaning the statutory United States, the District of Columbia. And it was sustained because of his admission that he was a citizen of the United States, a U period, S period citizen, if you will, a statutory U period, S period citizen. The property taxed was outside the territorial limits of the United States, meaning it was an international area, but the property was owned by the statutory citizen of the United States. The contention was rejected that the citizen's property was without the limits of the United States, meaning the national government. Uh, and the fact that the basis of the power to tax was not and cannot be made dependent on the situs of the property which was, of course, outside in, in international country, Mexico. But the domicile of the citizen was the issue. And upon his admission that his relation as a citizen, a U-period, S-period citizen of the, the national government, and the relation that he established bound him to be a taxpayer. So this is illustrative of the fact that you have to be careful with the words. This is also illustrative of the reason that we use American national so that you don't get caught in any of these convoluted definitions that you may or may not be well aware of. Okay. Let's move on. I'm trying to cover this as quickly as possible. A lot of people have looked at implementing regulations, and for those of you who are new to regulations, there are basically three types. There's administrative, procedural, and implementing, or some people call them legislative regulations. Now, if you look for the implementing regulation for the imposition of the federal income tax, you will find it at 26 CFR 1.0-1, and this is for the Internal Revenue Code of 1954 and regulations. And I'll just read you brief sections of it just to make sure you get the key points. I'm not trying to skip over anything, but time is of the essence. Okay, section 1.0-1A, enactment of law. The Internal Revenue Code of 1954 uh, became law upon enactment approved August 16, 1954. So here you have the date of enactment into law of the Internal Revenue Code and it is an implementing regulation. Now, you have to keep in mind the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment. Upon whom was the federal income tax levied? It was levied upon the national government, public offices. What was the jurisdiction to which it was applicable according to the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment and the 16th Amendment itself? It was only the District of Columbia because that's the only place they could avoid consideration of the rule of apportionment. Now, I'd like some of you out there to do some homework for both yourself and perhaps even us, if you're kind enough to share it. And I will explain that in just a New York minute. 
All right. Now, as you read down further, it says, in general, the provisions of the Internal Revenue Code are applicable with respect to taxable years beginning after December 31, 1953, and ending after August 16, 1954. Okay. Now, for those of you who are not used to reading the legalese terms, let me just try to shorten it a little bit. The provisions of the Internal Revenue Code are applicable beginning after December 31, 1953, and ending, and ending after August 16, 1954. What was the date of enactment? August 16, 1954. Now, some people will say plus or minus on either side of the equation, and there's explanations of why people would use such a terminology, but if you're enacting something, why would you even reference that it ends? That's a very key thought to hold on to. Now, let's look at the scope of regulations. It says it basically relates to income taxes imposed under subtitle A of the Internal Revenue Code of 1954, and number two, certain administrative excuse me, provisions contained in the subtitle F of such code relating to such taxes. Now, subtitle F is your enforcement, assessment, liens, or levy. Okay. So the first homework question is to write the Office of the Federal Register and request the volume, date, and page number of the promulgation in the Federal Register of this implementing regulation, 26 CFR 1.0-1. Now, if you can acquire that, I would love to have a copy. I did that several times in different years in the past, and I got complete silence. Okay. Again, I don't know it all. I'm not claiming to know it all, but I'm saying that if what I'm saying tonight is incorrect, if this is really the scheme, then the structure of the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment, levying the tax only, the income tax only upon the national government, public offices, and applicable only within the jurisdiction of the District of Columbia because of the lack of a, using the rule of apportionment, as required by the Constitution, if the government's going to put a direct tax on the American people, then this law could never be published in the Federal Register. And the only evidence of that, which would mean the law applies, by the way, to the 50 states of the Union. So if they had this implementing regulation, but it's never been published in the Federal Register, then that's like having clothes in your closet that you don't wear. It's, there's no benefit to you. In other words, they can't use that in outside of their own jurisdiction. So if you will be so kind, again, as to ask for the volume, date, and page number of, and you're asking the Federal Register, the Office of the Federal Register, for the volume, date, and page number in the Federal Register of the publishing of this implementing regulation, 26 CFR 1.0-1, I'd love to get a copy of it. Okay, now if you will look at the statutes for a moment, and this is 26 USC. 7851 A1A, and this deals with the applicability of revenue laws. Now, this section actually applies to ATF, and we'll go into that in just a moment, but let's read a few sections. Subtitle A is the federal income tax, and listen to what it says in the opening section. I'm not going to read all this, but just a few brief portions of a sentence here. Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 6 that's what makes up subtitle A, of this title shall apply with respect 
to taxable years beginning after December 31, 1953, and then there's a comma, and ending after the day of enactment of this title. There it is again. Now, if you think that I'm misreading anything, that's fine. Let's just look over at subtitle C under 7851. And it says, subtitle C of this title shall apply with respect to remuneration paid after December 31, 1953. There is no reference to it ending. Okay? Don't believe me anymore. Look for yourself. Subtitle D under section 7851. And I quote, subtitle D of this title shall take effect January 1, 1955. Subtitle E. Subtitle E shall take effect on January 1, 1955. Both of these subsections for these subtitles have no reference to the fact that it ends after the date and enactment of this title. There is no reference to any of these subtitles ending. Now let's look at subtitle F for enforcement. Okay, The provisions of subtitle F shall take effect on the day after the date of enactment of this title. And we're talking about assessment, liens, and levy authority. So if we go back up to the beginning, just like we did with 26 CFR 1.0-1, and it says chapters 1, 2, 4, and 6, and so forth, and it came in with that statement ending after the date of enactment, which was, what, August 16, 1954. How can a law be a law before it's enacted? And how can a law be a law once it ends? And if everything was appropriate by saying it ends on such and such, why didn't subtitles that we just listed, C, D, and E, have the same narrative? Now, if you look at enforcement again, all these assessment liens and levies only went into effect the day after the date of enactment. Well, if the implementing regulation, 26 CFR 1.0-1, ended on the same day it was enacted, one day later, what type of enforcement authority exists? These are really serious questions. Now, I'll go you one further. In the past, Cornell University Law website listed the parallel authorities. In other words, when you would look up 7851, for example, they would give you the parallel authorities. And I did this years ago and put a little chart, and this is also available on our resource center. When you look at 6201 Assessment Authority, uh, 6212 Notice of Deficiency, well, that's without, that's not. Anyway, that's not part of the assessment and uh, enforcement, I'm sorry. Uh, it's 6321 for liens, 6331 for levy. So those are the three, 6201, 6321, 6331. If you look at them, in the past they used to tell you 27 CFR Part 70. Now, as most of you would probably know that have read anything about implementing regulations and the titles and the Code of Federal Regulations, Title 27 is not Title 26, first of all. Pretty simple, obviously. But Title 27 is ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Now, what they're doing is attempting to cross-reference, they being the IRS. Now, if you look at 1 CFR 21.21C, you will see very clearly 
and I'm paraphrasing, so don't hold me verbatim, but I'm trying to let you know that the ability for the government to allow different agencies or departments, and in case of the IRS, it's a bureau. It's not an agency. Uh, they cannot cross-reference. It prohibits 21, uh, 1 CFR 21.21C prohibits the ability for departments to cross-reference from their statutes in their titles to implementing regulations in a different title. Now, if they could do that, then why even have all these different titles? Why don't you just have one title, one code, and everything's all jumbled together? Well, they didn't want that. That would have been a massive amount of confusion. So this ability to cross-reference is not permitted, but yet they're showing that that's exactly what they've done. And now Cornell University, uh, at least the last time I was there, they no longer allow you to just click on the statute and then in the right column click on parallel authorities because it's created a lot of concern and embarrassment. Okay. I think that horse is pretty well covered, but uh, let's keep going. We're going to talk about the Federal Register Act very quickly. And in this activity, you will find in 26 CFR 601.702A, publication in the Federal Register. Number one, requirement. This is not an option. It is a requirement. The Internal Revenue Service, and I'm quoting in part, the Internal Revenue Service is required under 5 U.S.C. 552A1 to separately state and currently publish in the Federal Register for the guidance of the public in the following information. Little ID, Substantive Rules of General Applicability Adopted as Authorized by Law. In other words, they're saying if you have an implementing regulation, you are obligated, IRS, to publish in the Federal Register any such imposing implementing regulation that would apply to the 50 states of the Union, meaning those people that live there, the American nationals. Keep in mind what the legislative intent and the 16th Amendment have said. Who were the parties levied? The national government, public offices, if you will. What is the jurisdiction that it was levied on? Because they didn't use the rule of apportionment, it was the District of Columbia. Now, interesting enough, if you look at the same regulation, 26 CFR 601.702A2II, the effect of failure to publish. And I will read this, and it'll be ever so brief. All right. Uh, it's required to be published in the Federal Register. Such person is not required in any manner to resort to or be adversely affected by if such matter if it is not so published or incorporated by reference. So what they're saying is that if there is an implementing regulation and it's not so published or made reference to in the Federal Register, however you want to describe that action, then you're not adversely affected as an American national. And they, they even go further to say, thus, for example, any such matter which imposes an obligation and which is not so published or incorporated by reference will not adversely change or affect a person's rights so if you have the implementing regulation, but you've never published it, meaning it doesn't apply to the 50 states of the union, then there is no adverse effect. There's no application of that law toward you. So I think you've got a very good idea from the Federal Register Act. Um, and again, that is basically, uh, if you want to get to the real source of it, it's Title 44, Chapter 15. But this is a, a title in the 
the IRS uses in their administrative or procedural regs. Uh, 601, I think, is a procedural reg. I could be wrong. It might be 301. But anyway, it's been a while. All right. And the Administrative Procedures Act, 5 U.S.C. 556D, basically is saying the same thing, that a sanction may not be imposed a rule or order issued except upon consideration of the whole record or those parts thereof cited by a party in support in accordance with the reliable, probative, and substantial or substantive or substantial evidence. So that's a lot of wind and a lot of gyrations for a lot of people, but I hope you've tried to hold through with it all and get the general idea that if something and that something being the implementing regulation is not promulgated or published in the Federal Register. It has no effect on you as an American national living and working in the 50 states of the Union. And if you will, also make a note for the Michael White letter. And I thank uh, one of the guys in the past, Eddie Kahn, for this effort. This is his work. Um, that Michael L. White, who is a federal attorney in the office of the Federal Register, back in, what was it, 1994, I believe, he basically stated in this response to a, a question written by an American national in Cicero, Illinois. He is, his last sentence says it all. He says, our records indicate that the Internal Revenue Service has not incorporated by reference in the Federal Register as that term is defined in the Federal Register system, a requirement to make an income tax return. So let me just leave out that one small section. Our records indicate that the Internal Revenue Service has not incorporated by reference in the Federal Register a requirement to make an income tax return. Now, he was asked also about the titles, the statutes rather, for Title 26 being published in 26 CFR. And a lot of them were very, very important statutes. And if you bring up this letter, you will see it very clearly the whole list of them. And in conclusion, he said in the second paragraph, there are no corresponding entries for Title 26. This is why the IRS, as I mentioned earlier, has tried to cross-reference their statutes to the Title 27 regulations, and they cannot do that according to federal law. Okay, it all ties in the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment and the 16th Amendment itself. Now, I guess I'm looking at some of the other terms that come up quite often are definitions. And definitions can and are, at times, somewhat confusing. And the goal is to try to eliminate that confusion or to minimize it. And if you can think of the words that are used, let me just give you Black's Law definition of the word definition. All right, it incorporates the containment of all essential elements and excludes all non-essential as to distinguish it from all the other things and classes. In other words, a definition, to actually be a definition, has to be precise and it cannot be open-ended. Now, uh, SEDM has a great book, or pamphlet, I should say. Uh, it's over 100 pages, and it just deals with the word includes. And you see this many times in the definition. And I will not belabor that point tonight. We're going to run out of time if I do. 
So I just want you to realize that you can go to that particular memorandum of law on SEDM.org and download that section or pamphlet on the word include. So when you read definitions and you see include or includes, you will understand that basically. Quite honestly, it is limited to means confined within to the exclusion of all others. That's the summation of that. Now, if you agree with that or not, that's your choice, but that's the way it's laid out for me to understand. All right, now, I'm trying to run through this. I know we're, how long have we been, Patrick, on this so far? Roughly an hour? Okay. I'm going to try to shorten it up because this is really getting too windy. I apologize to everyone. Um, there is one particular point. If you look at terms like taxpayer and person, you're going to see the word person intertwined constantly, and the word person means and includes, here it is, individual, trust, estate, partnership, association, company, or corporation. Now, every time you see the word person in a statute, you have to stop and look at that definition. You can't assume that it means anything other than what is defined to mean. Now, if you look at this Supreme Court decision, United States versus Cooper Corporation, uh, 3112 U.S. 600, and the year was 1941, and I quote, since in common usage the term person does not include the sovereign, statutes not employing the phrase are ordinarily construed not to include it. Now, quite honestly, I don't like the word sovereign because it identifies a negative connotation by the press and by others. But the Supreme Court was basically alluding to the fact that the national government is referring, or I should say the con excuse me, I'm tired. It's been a long, long day. I apologize. Um, the Supreme Court is saying that the term person represents, does not include person, does not include sovereign, but it includes basically the reference to American national by using the word sovereign. So person does not identify American nationals. Person does not include that group, which is the bulk of the population in the constitutional republic. So when you look at definitions, you must be very clear and you need to hang on to that particular site, United States versus Cooper Corporation, to really get a handle on the fact that when you talk about sovereigns, U.S. citizens, American nationals, that you understand clearly what this is saying. Okay, um, we've just got maybe another 15 minutes and we'll try to wrap this up. Um, there's a lot of definitions about U.S. citizens and so forth, but the one that I want to draw to your attention tonight is that which is defined in uh, AMDR, 3C, AMDR, 2D, Aliens and Citizens. Again, if you want the site, I'll get it for you. Just email us. And I'm going to try to summarize it here. In Section 2689, who was born in the United States and subject to United States jurisdiction? It says, and I quote, a person is born subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, meaning the national government, for purposes of acquiring citizenship at birth if his or her birth occurs in territory over which the United States is sovereign and it goes on to describe a little more. That is not reflective of the 50 states of the Union, the Constitutional Republic. This is a very clear definition showing you a distinction between the statutory definition of U.S. citizen versus what we know today are American nationals, 
And again, that term is used in the Constitution, citizens of the United States, but we avoid it because of the confusion. That's the only reason. Okay. Um, I'm going to try to shorten this up. This has just been too long. It's an awful lot of material. And you can see very quickly that the short interval is just not going to be sufficient to cover it all. Um, trader business is another term. Trader business is something that confuses a lot of people, but the definition in 26 U.S.C. 7701-A26 includes, consists of, to the exclusion of all other terms, if you will allow that latitude, the performance of the functions of a public office. It does not mean you've got hammers and nails or you drive a bus or anything else like that. It's talking about a public office, unless that definition of a public office means hammers and nails, carpenter, or bus driver, or whatever but it has to be created by the U.S. Congress, most of which is confusing to people when they first read that. All right. Uh, okay. Let's see. I think I'm going to wrap it up on that part because we are definitely running short of time here, and I'm getting quite weary, and I apologize for that, but I'm human. Well, you're doing good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there's a lot of other things that I want to draw to your attention, but the first one is the definition of the United States. And thank you, Angela. Um, it's 26 U.S.C. 7408D, citizens and residents outside the United States. Now, keep in mind, as I read this short one-sentence definition, we're talking about citizens and residents outside the United States. If any citizen or resident of the United States does not reside in and does not have his principal place of business in any United States judicial district, such citizen or resident shall be treated for purposes of this section as residing in the District of Columbia. So if you start realizing, let's substitute United States for the District of Columbia because that's what they just said. And now let's reread it or paraphrase it if you'll allow me that latitude. Citizens and residents outside the District of Columbia. If any citizen or resident of the District of Columbia does not reside in and does not have his principal place of business in any United States judicial district, and there's only one, it's the District of Columbia, such citizen or resident shall be treated for purposes of this section as residing in the District of Columbia. So this is how they bring you back in statutorily. If you live maybe in Wyoming or Kalamazoo or Los Angeles. They'll bring you back in through this statute. Very, very important to understand that they are not referring to the 50 states of the Union unless they specifically refer to the 50 states of the Union. Okay? Uh, I'm going to try to skip through this real quick. Trader business we've already covered. Okay, let's try to address this issue of non-resident aliens. Okay, this is an unusual term. Uh, if you look at the definition, you will find it in 26 U.S.C. 7701 B1B. The first B is a little b. The second B is a capital B. All right? Very important that you look at this definition, that you understand what they're saying here. Now, with this definition, they will tell you what a non-resident alien is not. 
they will not tell you what a non-resident alien actually is. Now, if you remember that brief comment about the definition in Black's Law Dictionary of the word definition, it is precise, it's not open-ended. If I told you that my car was not blue, my car was not white, have I told you what color my car was? The answer is obviously no. So if I say a non-resident alien is neither a citizen of the United States nor a resident alien, have I told you what they really are? These are powerful wordsmithing tools that those specialists have created to obfuscate and create dissension and confusion, and they have been very successful and very skilled at it. If I were an evil person, I would be drooling with satisfaction because these people were very, very skilled at what they do. And thank God I'm not. <laughs> but anyway, uh, there are some taxable areas, again, that you need to look at. Those who work for the national government, so if you're a non-resident alien, you work for the national government, you're engaged in a trader business, then you're a taxpayer. If your earnings are not connected, are not connected with a trader business, um, then those earnings or federal franchises, if you will, which we'll go over, are taxable. A voluntary election. If you're a non-resident alien, meaning an American national, who's made an election to have your income treated under 6013G, Title 26, you will see very clearly. And the government tells you very clearly that at 26 CFR 1.871-1A, that you don't have an income tax liability unless your source of income is derived from the performance of the functions of a public office. All right? But however, you can, you may choose to elect. Now, may is not an obligatory word. May is a permissive word. So in this particular regulation, 26 CFR 1.871-1A, you will see very clearly they're offering you an inducement that if you make an election, and the election that they're talking about is filing your first Form 1040 return. All right, that's it. That's how you join the U.S. Tax Club. Okay. Uh, the other federal franchises, there's three of them. If you want those, they're under 26 U.S.C. 871A1. It deals with capital gains from real property on federal territory. 26 U.S.C. 871-H, a portfolio debt instrument such as treasury bills, treasury bonds. The last one is 26 U.S.C. 881-A, and these are basically the types of federal franchises. This deals with the uh, foreign corporation patents, copyrights, and interests. So if you're making money out of any of those, then you have to pay the tax. Now, if you are being told that you're a taxpayer, means that you hold a public office. And if you hold a public office, there's certain documents that would prove that you are indeed one who holds a public office. Now, if you're claiming to be that which you're not, you can be persecuted and prosecuted by the government for imposing or pretending to be that which you're not. And it is not a wise thing to do. But this is what, in effect, has occurred by you filing a return because you're filing it, identifying yourself holding a public office. Because who, going back to the 16th Amendment and the legislative intent, the federal income tax was only levied upon where? 
the national government, public offices. So if you do not hold a public office, you cannot be a taxpayer. Okay? In the context of this narrow scope of discussion. All right? So the other area, of course, was the lack of apportionment. So it's only in the District of Columbia for its applicability. Now, let's just say you think that you're, you're holding a public office. If you do, you will know you are indeed doing that because you will have documents to prove that you hold a public office, such as an SF-171 application for federal employment. You will have appointment affidavits. You will have a sworn oath with a signature. That's your oath of office. Payment records proving income effectively connected with a trade or business. In other words, you're getting paid by the government holding that public office. You'll have a federal retirement plan. And you'll have an office where you work in. There's a lot of things that just don't fit because they're not there. Okay. For the, again, for American nationals who have not chosen to work for the national government. Now, let's see what else we can bring this to a There's just too much work. I don't know how far we're going to get on all this tonight, uh, but I will try to. If I'm running out of time, Angela, just let me know. We got plenty of time. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just hope I can hold up. I'll keep, I'll keep going as best I can. Uh, it says here there's 130 participants on this call. So. Oh wow. Okay. Well, we'll we'll keep going then uh, as best I can. <laughs> All right. So if you understand the issues that have already been explained so far, then you're far ahead of most people. Uh, but. Uh, Anyway, the goal is, again, to try to keep it simple, and I have not achieved that objective. But uh, the credibility of what's going on with American nationals when they make this selection, this filing this first form 1040, they do it with consent. And consent is basically structured under comedy. And comedy, basically, if you look it up, is you'll find that it's, and I'm paraphrasing again, so don't hold me to the verbatim, but it's an informal or substantive voluntary recognition of consent in which you take on the responsibility or the mantle of the laws within that jurisdiction which you have agreed to subordinate yourself to. So keep in mind that there are American nationals who wind up in court, they start quoting the Constitution, and I have heard this in one case where the judge said, if you bring up the Constitution one more time, I will fine you and throw you in jail. And this was the United States District Court. This is federal zone, if you will. This is the District of Columbia, wherever it's represented throughout the 50 states of the Union. Those are insular possessions, if you will. Now, by comedy, by filing this Form 1040, you have allowed the mantle of the laws, the statutory laws in the Internal Revenue Code to be placed upon your back. Therefore, you have become a U.S. taxpayer. Okay? This is how they started the game as well. So when you grant consent, it can be done sub silentio, meaning under silence. Now, if there is indeed the law that we've gone over so far, we've talked about the 16th Amendment, the legislative intent, we've talked about Michael White and his legal opinion letters, and on and on. If you have no implementing regulation published in the Federal Register, then American nationals have never been made liable. And if you can find that 26 CFR 1.0-1, please, some of you, take the time to write your congressmen, your senators, or whoever uh, to get a copy of that. 
you may have to go directly to the office of uh, the Federal Register, and if they don't provide it, then go to your congressman and so forth. Okay. Um, one of the other surprises for a lot of people in describing the federal income tax is the Treasury Department. I alluded to this earlier, but under Title 31, Section 321 D1 and D2, and I will only read D2 because time is of the essence. For purposes of the federal income, estate, and gift taxes, property accepted under Paragraph 1, which is the D1, shall be considered as a gift or bequest to and for the use of the United States, meaning the national government. Okay, there's a lot of information that has been laid out so far, but here are American nationals who have chosen to make the election sub salientio. By comedy, they have the burden of all the statutory laws placed upon them. There was no warning like you see on cigarette packets today that tell you the dangers of doing what you're about to do, okay? They do it sub silencio. Now, this election was stated to be voluntary, and that was under sworn testimony by Dwight E. Avis back in February 1953, and his information is also on the website Resource Center. Uh, the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment restricts the federal income tax from being only a willful act on the part of Americans choosing to gift their, not their money, but their currency to the national governments for its use. Now, if you voluntarily make this election, then you're not violating any laws and neither is the federal government. They're basically saying, well, let's just use the example like the Kiwanis Club. If you wanted to join the Kiwanis Club, you voluntarily went in and said, I want to become a member and go through their processes and you're accepted as a member. Now, at some point down the road, let's just say you lose interest or you have to move away or you move to an area where there is no Kiwanis Club and you just want to resign. They can't keep you tied in to making you keep paying dues or whatever they have in their organizational fees. You can leave. You voluntarily entered, you can voluntarily leave. Well, the same is true under 26 U.S.C. 6013 G4A, and the A is a capital A. Now, let's look at one other thing before we go to that statute. The 13th Amendment. Now, this is the reason that the exit door is there, in my opinion. Okay, this is my opinion. I'm not saying this is actually written down in law, but if you look at the 13th Amendment, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist in the United States. What the 13th Amendment did not outlaw was voluntary servitude. So you can sell your soul to the devil, literally speaking, you know, in this context. So if you voluntarily choose, then you're not violating the 13th Amendment, and neither is the federal government. They're not doing anything wrong. They basically made you an offer. You may, however, choose to make the election, pay the income tax, pay the file of a return. <clears throat> and again, by comedy, bring all this burden of all our tax structure right on top of your head. Now, what we're not going to do is we're not going to show you the exit door. We're not going to let you find that out unless you dig for it. Okay? So our propaganda scheme worked very well. We put enough information out. Every year, and mom and dad, aunt and uncle, and all my cousins and everything else, if you will, 
everybody was doing it, so that must be the right thing to do. So there was a lot of presumptions made. Remember what Henry Kissinger said. The truth is not important. It's the perception of the truth that's important. I'm paraphrasing it. Okay. One last thing on this particular area. Dwight Avis. This was testimony, sworn testimony, before the House Ways and Means Committee, February 1953. And again, it's on our resource center. And I quote on the last page that uh, in this exhibit that I have listed here, Mr. Avis is speaking, and he says, and I quote, let me point this out now. Your income tax is 100% voluntary tax, and your liquor tax is 100% enforced tax. Now, the situation is as different as night and day. Consequently, your same rules, meaning regulations, will simply not apply, or will just not apply, excuse me. And he continues to narrate. So for the first time, you see something that's back in 1953. If any of you saw the YouTube presentation by retiring acting IRS Commissioner Stephen Miller, uh, they admitted that it's a voluntary election. Okay? And this is what Mr. Avis was saying right here, too. And this was when ATF and the IRS were all one agency at the time. Now, if you've got a good idea, and hopefully you do now, you see very clearly, especially from this Regulation 26 CFR 1.871-1A, that non-resident aliens are taxable only on income from sources within the United States, and I'm shortening it up, so don't hold me if I don't quote it all, from sources without the United States, which is effectively connected with the taxable year, with the conduct of a trade or business, the performance of the functions of a public office. Once again, where did the 16th Amendment show that the federal income tax was on the public offices? The national government where it was levied upon in the United States. What is the statutory United States? It's the District of Columbia. Okay? Why? Again, people don't see this is because there are just a massive, massive amount of laws. It has purposely been put together in such volumes that most people could not ever see all this. Again, and I quote, this is so interesting. However, non-resident alien individuals, and in this context they're referring to American nationals, may elect. They won't call us constitutional republic citizens or American nationals or any other term. They call us non-resident alien individuals. Okay. May elect, may, a permissive use by that word, under 6013 GRH to be treated, meaning taxed, as a U.S. citizen for the purposes of determining your income tax liability under chapters 1, 5, and 24 of the code. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people going, well, how do you know that non-resident aliens are really, really, and truly talking about American nationals. The term that I use to represent what is stated in the Constitution to mean citizens of the United States. Not the statutory definition, but the constitutional expression. But again, we've tried to separate it to differentiate. If you will read the same statute, or the same regulation, I apologize, 26 CFR 1.871-1 B4, expatriation to avoid tax. It references non-resident alien who has lost U.S. citizenship. 
with the principal purpose of avoiding certain taxes. Here, for the first time, you see the expression. They're talking about U.S. citizenship, and they're talking about it in the context of expatriation. Now, I don't know of any legal fiction, a company, a corporation, a partnership, a trust, etc., that can expatriate. If anybody knows something other than that, I'm wide open. I am not opposed to learning. I do not know at all, but I have not seen that expressed that clearly. So if you will look at that again, first of all, this particular reference is to expatriation, and they're talking about non-resident aliens losing their U.S. citizenship. The only group that I know that can lose their U.S. citizenship is those Americans in the Constitutional Republic who were by birth, parentage, or naturalization Americans. Okay? All right. One other little thing that's a little tidbit that's kind of interesting. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, they have a publication. It was back in 2004, and we have it up on the website, I believe, under the Resource Center. And it deals with tax treatment of thrift savings plans for non-resident aliens and their beneficiaries. And again, they had defined the term a non-resident alien is an individual who is neither a U.S. citizen nor a resident of the United States. So they told you what it is not. They haven't told you what it is. But on the second page that we have there, on the second column, you will see basic references a non-resident alien participant who never worked for the U.S. government in the United States will not be liable for U.S. income tax. Down at the bottom almost, and I read this one, a non-resident alien beneficiary of a non-resident alien participate, participant excuse me, will not be liable for U.S. income tax if that persist, participant never worked for the United States government in the United States. This all goes back to the legislative intent of the 16th Amendment. It goes back to the 16th Amendment. It says the same thing over and over and over. It's very consistent. Okay? Now, we have a revocation of election. And this is something that has created a lot of interest. There's been some naysayers out there. And with all due respect, you know, a lot of people don't understand the fullness of it. And that's fine. There's no issue. Uh, the key is to understand as best you can. And if you don't agree, then that's fine. But you have to be able to read the law and understand it or it's void for vagueness. Because how can you be liable for something that you can read and you go, what? I don't understand any of what I just read. In other words, if I gave you something in Portuguese to read and you don't know the first bit of the Portuguese language, it's not going to do you any good. So if I have laws that I'm reading and I can't comprehend what they mean, then what good are they? There's something going on. Now, if you look at 26 U.S.C. 6013G, it talks about the election to treat non-resident alien individuals, again, those who can expatriate and lose their U.S. citizenship if they do, meaning American nationals. All right? And they're talking about statutory terms every point of the way. United States, okay? Huh. Under G1, it says a non-resident alien individual shall be treated as a resident of the United States, and it goes on to explain Chapter 1 and Chapter 24. As you drop down to Number 3, duration of the election. The election under this section shall apply 
and it goes on to state until it's terminated under paragraph four or five. Until terminated. In other words, if you don't know that you can leave the tax club, you can stay in the tax club. Now, that's a short-handed version of expression. Maybe some will appreciate that. Some will not. Okay, that's fine. It's just my way of trying to keep it simple. Number four, termination of election. An election under this subsection shall terminate at the earliest following times, revocation by taxpayer. And it says, if either taxpayer revokes the election as of the first year or the last day prescribed by law for filing a return under Chapter 1. In other words, keep it simple. If you want to terminate the election, you have to go through a revocation process. And there is a process, and we've perfected that process. Once you leave the U.S. Tax Club, it is a lifetime benefit. Because if you look down at 26 U.S.C. 6013 G6, only one election. If any election under the subsection of any individuals is terminated under paragraph 4 or 5 for any taxable year, in other words, whenever you decide to do it, if you decide to leave by terminating the election, such two individuals shall be eligible to make an election, shall not, excuse me, shall be ineligible to make an election under this section for any subsequent taxable years. Now, some people get very confused with the fact that all of a sudden two individuals or individuals or whatever, if you look at the very header, G, 2613G, did I say that right? I'm getting really tired. <laughs> uh, 6013G, excuse me, I apologize. I'm really, it's late. I've been up a long time. Um, Again, the election to treat non-resident alien individual. It's singular there. There are references to plural. There may be married couples involved in this. Don't let singular or plural throw you. Okay. Um, let's see. All right. We're just about through. I'm going to go into just a few little things that most people that have had background experience in this understand what a SFR, substitute for return, is. And this relates to people that get notice of deficiencies and that will get notices of intent to levies. And all of these are enforcement actions. And as we've alluded to, all of the enforcement actions, assessment, liens, and levies, are based upon regulations promulgated in 27 CFR Part 70 under ATF. And as you've read under what was it, 6851, I believe, under the statute of Title 26, that subtitle F enforcement only comes into play the day after the date of, elect, of enactment of that title. And we've discussed that ad nauseum at this point. So this SFR, or substitute for return, is the foundation for these issues that deal with assessment liens and levies. They have to create a substitute for return, or an SFR, and I have a letter, and I can get you copies of these documents if you request them. Um, we can post them on the website if they're not there. It's just a tremendous amount of information that we have yet to post up there. And this is November of 1993, signed by Jay Hammer, an IRS disclosure officer out of Ogden, Utah. And I will just basically reference, he said, your request for the substitute return, and he's basically for the identification. Uh, 
for a Form 1040. In other words, he's saying, does the IRS have authority to create an SFR for a Form 1040? And his answer was, delegation orders, which authorizes the Internal Revenue Service employees to create substitutes for return, do not exist. Now, he's talking about the Form 1040. They certainly have it under 6020B, and if you look under the uh, it's 5.1.11.6.7, you're going to see the SFR authority uh, for all of the various forms. There's eight or nine of them, but Form 1040 is not there. Now, there's a delegation order that we got a copy of a long time ago, back in 1983, um, and this was basically relating uh, <coughs> I'm going to have to get some water here just a second. Quite all right. Go all ahead. Right. Thank you. Um, the authority granted to the Internal Revenue Service to create SFRs. And I quote, the IRM re restricts the broad delegation shown in figure 23-2 for revenue officers to employment exercise and partnership tax returns because of constitutional issues. Now, that means you can't create a SFR for a Form 1040. It's not there. But yet they do that all the time. And in all their documentation, their NOD letters, notice of deficiencies, collection due process, notice of intent to levy. If you ask for the documentation behind it all, they would clearly show you that they created these SFRs and they have no authority for it, at least according to everything that we found. All right. Um, one other thing that we can post up there too is something that's a little unusual. It was by uh, the director of an IRS office in, by the name of Clunan in Philadelphia in 1998. And in his third paragraph, he opens a statement, our system of taxation is dependent on taxpayers' belief that the laws they follow apply to everyone and that the IRS will respect and protect their rights under the law. And then he goes on to talk about, on the next page, enforcement actions, liens, levies, and so forth, assessments. And it basically says, shall be lawful for the secretary to collect levy upon property, rights, and property belonging to such persons. The levy may be made on the accrued salary, wages of any officer, employee, or elected official of the United States, the District of Columbia, or any agency or instrumentality of the United States or the District of Columbia by serving a notice of levy on the employer of such officer, employee, or elected official. <laughs> I mean, this is basically telling you that the income tax is only applicable on the public office. It's only designed to affect the limited jurisdiction because of the lack of the rule of apportionment. It goes all back to the source, the 16th Amendment and the legislative intent of that amendment as a driving factor behind it. Okay. Um, I think I'm pretty well wiped out. Uh, there's a lot of other things that could be brought up about court orders of dismissal for lack of jurisdiction and so forth, but we might have to do that at a different time. I'm just fading pretty fast. I can feel it. <laughs> well, you've gone an hour and a half straight without stopping, so 
I don't I don't blame you for being tired or worn out. Um, did you want to take some questions? Yes, I'll try my best, and uh, I don't know how long I'll last, but I'll try my best to answer some. All right. Well, when you need to go, just let us know, and we'll do that. Okay. Thank you, Angela. <laughs> All righty. If you have a question for Adele Weiss, please press star 8. That'll put your hand up. Okay. North and West Colorado, go ahead. You're first in line. Hi, it's Nancy. How are you? Hi, Nancy. Fine, thank you. Um, I have a question about the um, United States and the United States of America because I see in uh, court cases, and I'm in one myself in federal district court, and the plaintiff is the USA. However, the Department of Justice uh, attorneys keep saying United States is, you know, attorneys, et cetera, et cetera. And several times I've said, you know, the United, I thought that the plaintiff was the United States of America, not the United States, and he said they are the same. I don't get that. Well, uh, is there a question that you might kind of summarize what you're looking for? Is just that you, you're saying are the two the same? Are you in litigation right now, you're saying? Yes. Yes, and uh, I don't think they're the same. I mean, there are three meanings for the United States of America, but I don't. Are think you are you running pro se, or you have an attorney? No, I'm pro se. Okay, um, boy. So you are actually in the room where the judge sits and the plaintiff and defendant. No, and so no forth? It's all paper so far. So you're inside their court, is what you're saying? Well, I guess so. I'm sending, you know, response. Okay. Question. Okay, well, you, if you're inside that the the bench where the judge sits and the plaintiff and defendants and the jury box and so forth, no, I'm not physically in court. Oh, okay. It's all paperwork. Okay, it's all paperwork. Okay. Well, um, I'm not an expert on litigation per well, se. Are you, are you in Are you in the district United States District Court? Yes. Okay. What I want well, to you, is can't I mean I know that the United States it can't be a plaintiff, but I don't understand how the United States Corporation and the United States of America corporations are the same unless one owns the other. Well, I'm not going to venture off into an area that I don't have proficient knowledge in to be honest with you, but I would recommend that you contact SEDM.org. Uh this uh, website can probably give you the kind of information that you're looking for, and perhaps even more than you think. Uh, there is a way to communicate with them, um, and uh, hopefully you will be able to get through to them. But again, the litigation issue that, uh, that you're engaged in, if you've submitted to that jurisdiction, then um, you have an uphill battle. Well, I haven't, and I've, I've given them reasons why I'm not in that jurisdiction. But anyway, we won't go into that. What, what is the name of the, the org that you just said? Yeah, we just we just honestly, the only thing we do is dealing with the tax court. We don't, and of course, the tax court and the United States district courts are territorial or tribunal courts, according to Balzac versus people of Puerto Rico. Right. But we specialize just in this one area that we're engaged in with the tax court. He said the uh, website was sedm.org. Oh, okay. oh, see them. Okay, I know that. 
Yeah. Um, all right. They're, ex- they're excellent. I'm sorry I couldn't help. Yeah, yeah, I know all about them. Um, thank you. I have one, one other thing, though, is you seem to be able to, you were talking about uh, opting out, and it seems to be that would be only the last year. Why couldn't you do it nunk per tunk? Well, because you have to look at the statutes, because under comedy, again, you have the statute responsibility that you have to adhere to, and as a result of you being structured not in the 50 states of the union, but you're structured under the District of Criminals, I mean the District of Columbia. So as a result... I'm a state citizen, so anyway. But but anyway, it's just one of these things that you've got to keep that knowledge base of understanding that you made that first free will choice, as they call it, a voluntary election, and now you're under that umbrella, and if you're going to fight them, you have to use their statutes and follow their regulations and so forth, and they have a lot of different court procedures, and there's a lot of different types of courts, and, you know, it's far beyond me to, like I said, I, there's no way I could handle all of that. Well, you can't but voluntarily uh, and get a contract if you have no understanding. I mean, there are specific things that contracts, you know, need to be done by. Well, again, you know, if you start looking at the fact that your your domicile, your structure is identified as being property, because when you're a when you're a U.S. citizen, a U.S. person, if you will, you're property of the national government. This is why Cook versus Tate reached out and touched Mr. Cook, I believe it was, uh, that even though he was internationally, he claimed to be property of the government. And that's why they reached out and touched him. Well, and so you've got to be very, very careful when you deal with courts and the government because words won't hurt you. They will they will crush you. Right. No, I'm well aware of that. Yeah. I understand. God, God bless you. I hope so. <laughs> if you, that's a play on words, a joke. Understand. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. All right, we're going to move on. We've got Southeast Michigan. Go ahead. You've been unmuted. Good day. Good day. I have an honest question. Uh, in 1861, uh, before the start of the Civil War, when all of the hostilities started between the North and the South, the Congress sundied themselves, which basically means they chose not to re-hook up the Congress for a date certain until... Uh, things were reestablished as a total government. And, of course, two-thirds majority is always required when making and passing laws. There hasn't been a two-thirds majority since 1861. So all of these laws and these statutes that you're talking about are not law because they didn't have a two-thirds majority Congress vote them in. Now, that's one er area that I just wanted to discuss with you. The second area I wanted to discuss with you is in 1933, June 5th, 1933, House Joint Resolution 192, the United States officially went bankrupt, and that is published in the in reports before the Congress in the 73rd Congress. Robert Trafficant actually gave the report before the Congress and said that the United States was a bankrupt corporation. Now, anybody that's done any bankruptcy study knows that a bankrupt corporation is civilly dead. They don't exist, period. They just don't exist. So... When these guys come forward as this United States of America, and we look at this House Joint Resolution 192, and it clearly says that we couldn't pay our bills anymore and we're officially bankrupt, how, therefore, do we go forward and make further laws? Now, in 1939, they passed this 
uh, War Powers Tax Act, uh, just for the period of time during the war to help support the war effort, okay? So we had this, and they had made a formal promise that at the end of the war, faithfully, they would repeal the 1939 Act. Okay, it's now 1954 at the end of the Korean War, and they said, my God, we've got to keep our word to the American people. We're going to have to repeal this 1939 Act now that the war in Korea is over. And so they passed, they said they passed Title 26 U.S. Code. But what they really did was they went before Congress, and the one congressman stood up and said, actually on the record, if we pass this Title 26 one day after we enter it into law, the 1939 Act is repealed. Well, the 1939 Act was where all of the uh, may, I, may I may I may I interrupt you with all due respect? Um, it's really no, that I get. To I, I compliment you. I, I truly do, and I recognize your interest in this area. Uh, we have not touched on that tonight, and I think what you're, I think what you're saying is valid. I, I I don't challenge any of that. It's just that. Um, you can argue these points as much as you want, and I think that you are doing a stellar job of it. But the point is that is not the topic of what we're we're discussing here tonight. And well, it is. Key, it is the, the key topic is because you're going forward well, on these statutes, and these statutes are absolutely 100% void. They are not law. And if you check, okay, six, okay, you that's, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. But people. But the problem is that they exist, and people have to deal with them. And if you deal with them and get out of the system and get out of the mess, then you're far better off. Now, to me, instead of fighting the system, as it were, you know, you might find it more applicable or more beneficial. I'm trying to find the right descriptive adjective to to basically expatriate get a second citizenship, go to another country, and get rid of this mess. Because you're right, it is a mess. And the country's in dire straits, not only from a constitutional perspective, but they're in dire straits from a financial. I mean, you can't spend money that you don't have in trillions of dollars, in which they've already done, and sustain yourself very long. Rome fell in this country. Cohen versus Virginia, 6 feet 2, 1821, the part where it says the intent of the lawmaker is the law. So I took that and I ran with it. And when the congressman stood up and says, well, the American people are stupid. We just won't enter this into law. That way we'll keep the 1939 corporate uh, collection practices and we'll just not tell the American people. So they never enacted Title 26 into law. Now, if they never enacted Title 26 Well, you're right. You're right. It's not codified into law. On law. So how are we citing all this Title 26? Well, because you see, see, you submitted yourself to that jurisdiction if you file a re- return. That's the way they look at it. All right. All right. And if you, Were you just glad to believe this this uh, return was a lawful thing? Was there fraud involved? Were you induced to your injury by a species of silence, misinformation, or disinformation, which caused you to part with something of great value, namely your sovereign individual free citizenship, and then and there made to believe that this was the God's truth law, and then you find out later, oh, they lied like hell. This whole thing is all fraudulent. Fraud voids the most sacred contract. That's U.S. versus Quill, uh, 295 U.S., or that's uh, 550-297-300, and it says fraud voids the most sacred contract. So they're operating entirely in fraud, coming to you. They have no lawful authority to do anything that they're doing, and the only reason that people cooperate at all is because over a long period of custom and usage in time, they've been led to believe that these people know what they're doing and they're doing it all lawfully. Then when you come to court and bring it out, 
And I have brought it out and being charged with 27 years in a row. And 19 minutes later, I walk out of that court a free man because I brought all of this issue up. And that judge says, I have no other choice but to dismiss this case. Mr. Chadwell, if that's the best you're going to do, you lose. And they let me go. This is all law, 100% law. Everything that they're citing is 100% fraud. Fraud voids most sacred. Well, well, I commend you for your effort. You're certainly well well versed in that area, and uh, it is not our niche. So, okay, thank I you understand. for your comments. <laughs> all of this is fraud. Okay. All right. Thanks, Constitution Man. I'll have you on again. Good information the guy's got. Oh okay. yeah, that's Constitution Man. He's a legend. <laughs> a living legend. Um, okay, we're moving on. Rivera, go ahead. Did you have a question for Delweiss? Rivera, you've been unmuted. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. <laughs> I just wanted to know, after you file the ROE, are there any other papers that need to be filed, such as the Form 8832 or any, any other forms whatsoever that need to go out as a result of doing the ROE? Basically, the process that we've created is following federal statutes and regulations, and we follow them to the letter. And once you submit your revocation of election to the proper IRS offices, then it is in play immediately. Uh, it only works proactively. In other words, if you got it in before April 15th of this year, uh, it would apply for years 2013 in all years forward. If you got it in on April 17th, it would apply for 2014 in all years forward. But you don't have to follow up with any extra issues uh, as far as documentation or anything because it's a clean, excuse me, a clean, clear process to move forward with the documentation. Okay, well, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for your question. Okay, anyone else have a question? Press star eight, otherwise we're gonna let Mr. Weiss go go to bed. Thank you. <laughs> I don't see anybody else. Uh, oh, there's one spiral. Go ahead, you've been unmuted. Uh hello. Hi. I have a question. I I have a question about um the last week I think it was Ken W. He was talking about the birth certificate and that it's really a, an organization, and they put our name on it in uppercase letters, and that that organization is a federal agency, and we start using that, and we get an operator's license to use it in, the, let's say, the state of North Carolina. I just wondered what Adele thought about that idea, and that maybe that's the reason we have to pay an income tax is because we're using a federal agency. Um, well, thank you for your question. I apologize I didn't quite pick your name or hear your name, but the reason that the federal income tax is out there in the first place is based on what we talked about tonight. The legislative intent of the 16th Amendment, written by former POTUS Taft, June 16, 1909, and it was passed by Congress, and the 16th Amendment came out of it. And there's a lot of people saying it wasn't ratified, and this Constitution man is right on target with a lot of what he says, I'm sure. Uh, it's just that the structure that you have to deal with is just that. The foundation is the 16th Amendment. 
and it was only levied upon the national government and only levied upon their jurisdiction. If you are tied into or have a nexus to that District of Columbia jurisdiction, then you are under their dominion and control. You are their property. You have, by comity, this subsilential act of voluntary election of applied their statutes and their laws from that jurisdiction upon your back. And that's why the burden is so great. And our goal is to help you exercise the option that the U.S. Congress granted American nationals to exit the U.S. tax club through their door. And that door is the revocation of election process. And again, the reference that they use are terms called non-resident alien individuals. And hopefully tonight you've seen that that term means American nationals as we have defined the term to mean those by birth, parentage, or naturalization into the Constitutional Republic. Those are the people we're talking about. These are not people that work for the federal government. They have made an election and they want to terminate that election. And for those Americans also that have issues with notice of deficiencies in collection due process hearings, we are very successful in dealing with those. For the particular years in question, the IRS comes at you as well with the U.S. tax court. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, one more. Uh, go ahead, A Better Life. You've been unmuted. Yes, hi, um, Adele. Hi. Thank you so much for taking your time. I, you must be exhausted and, and for sticking here. <laughs> um, I just have one question. Um uh once one files the revocation that takes you out of the tax system but what do you do about existing prior um messes for lack of a better word the irs is is after one you know for back taxes you know threatening to file liens or already having liened you etc um can you then be um can you still act as as the taxpayer as a us citizen uh, to deal with those those back issues? Am I making sense? Yes, let me see if I can helpfully restate your question a little bit, and hopefully it's on target. Um, through the revocation of election, you basically depart the U.S. tax club on a permanent basis. And again, right. it's based, based on 6013G4A and G6 about termination of election and then one-time election. It means you're out of the club. Now, they have to do this, and this is my opinion, based on the 13th Amendment, because if they would not allow you to leave, then you're not there under voluntary structure, but you're involuntary. In other words, you're a a servant, you're an indentured servant. And so that is not the structure they can operate under. That's why they had to allow, in my opinion again, based on the 13th Amendment, to provide you this exit door. Now, if you leave, let's just say you completed that before April 14th, or, you know, because you got it, you can't wait till the last day to do this stuff. You just can't. Let's just say April first, you got the ROE in, and now you've covered the year in question, 2013, and all future years. It does not work in the years like 2009, 2010, and so forth. For those years, if you did not file, the key is if you did not file, and you meet our strict criteria for this notice of deficiency or notice of intent to levy under what is called a collection due process procedure, we can help you. Now, a notice of intent to levy has a 30-day window, so you have to act quickly. If you get a notice of deficiency, 
which is threatening a notice of a federal tax lien, then you have 90 to 150 days. Now, truthfully, you have 150 days because if you look at the term United States the way it's defined, it only represents unless there is an exception where they definitely refer to the 50 states, which they do not in the definition 7408D and 7701A9 and A10, they don't reference the 50 states of the union. Now, again, you have that full 150 days as a result because you're technically outside the statutory United States, meaning the District of Columbia, okay? And now you can apply that time window, which is far greater, to take care of this issue with the U.S. Tax Court. And the key is to just not submit to their jurisdiction. And they're very, very quiet, again, sub silentio, but we can help you avoid the tricks of getting yourself involved in submitting to that jurisdiction so that you can communicate with them and get this issue resolved in your favor. Okay. I, I understand that. But in those cases, if, if you have filed and if there's a conflict, you know, an audit, a, a ah, okay. whatever, okay. If, um, okay. that, that needs to be dealt with, um, are, you, are you acting in the capacity of a U.S. citizen at that point, even though you've filed the election? Can you go back and, and you know, function? Okay, okay. If you, Okay, that point I was not picking up on, so I, I apologize and I appreciate your clarification. Uh, if you have filed a return for any given year in the past and you did not pay the amount or pay it in full, then they have every right because you're a U.S. taxpayer. You have agreed under comity, consent, if you will, sub silentio, to voluntarily permit them to treat you like a U.S. resident alien. And therefore, you must pay the tax or work out some kind of a payment, 10 cents on the dollar, or whatever they'll accept. Because okay, you are in that. You're going to be doing that as a U.S. citizen that, that would have not filed the election. So, so my confusion is, does that all need to be cleared up before one can file the, the election, I guess? is. Oh, oh, no. You can stop you know, participating in the U.S. Tax Club at any time because if you read the statute under 6013G, you'll see that it's your choice as to when you want to exit. And the sooner the better for most people. So if you want to eliminate any years in question for 2013 on, you should probably think about moving forward with the revocation of election. Uh, but again, I can't tell you what to do. You have to read. We want you to get educated, read our website, get some information. And if you if you need to, uh, we will schedule a time, usually on Wednesdays, uh, when we have that opportunity uh, to call you and talk to you about your specific needs. Uh, but it's just I, I one of those things. What you're saying, it's just that I don't know how to deal with the, once I have filed the revocation of election, I don't know how to go back then and deal with the other existing issues. Well, uh -huh. the IRS will contact you on that, I trust you. <laughs> I mean, they, they will not let forget it. Um, again, if you file for any years in the past, like, like for example, 2008, 9, and 10, and that's the years they're saying you didn't pay enough or you didn't do something right, then they have every right to come back to you for those years because you were operating under their statutory laws, and you've got to clear that up. And there are services out there that can help you as a U.S. taxpayer. We don't deal with or interfere with the obligation of those who are U.S. taxpayers. 
You can, however, at any time stop this ongoing automatic election for the next year by stopping it if you choose to do so, and you can do it now, which will at least cover you for 2013. If you do it after April 15th, you yeah. lose 2013 coverage. You can only start it for 2014. So is it safe to say that you would be wearing two hats going forward? You'd be wearing no. a hat? No, no, no. It's just like, for example, if you decide to move and you bought a new house, but you still have the old one, you're not really in two places. You're moving to the new one, but you're selling the old one. It just hasn't sold yet. Mm-hmm. Keep it in, keep it simple. Don't make it complex. You're in transition. That's a better one. Thank you, Angela. <laughs> you're so good to help me. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for your question. You're very sweet. Thank you. Okay. Um, Constitution Man, you want to take him on one more time? Uh, I'll try. <laughs> I'll, I'll try my best. I have a case. It's called... There you go. You've been unmuted. Hi. It's called... Hi. How you doing? I got a case. Good. It's called Western Trading Company versus United States. And basically what it says is that if you have not been properly assessed, okay, the tax is deemed not to be owing. Now, what we do is we take and run with that, and we pull up the assessment they send to people, and we look at the upper left-hand corner, and a, a proper assessment is supposed to say a number called six, um, it's, it's, uh, 668 friends small b, okay? That is a bona fide uh, actual assessment lien document, okay? And then we look at the lower left corner, and there's almost always a little four handwritten, and then there's two signatures right there. One is signing for the other. Then we look over to the right lower corner, and it's supposed to say that it's signed by a collection branch manager, GS11 or above. But it'll almost always say that it's a a revenue agent, which is nothing but a GS9. Now, a GS9 does not have authority to make an assessment, number one. Number two, if there is a TTSE agreement, a trustee agreement, they've got to have a power of attorney attached to the back of it for that one person to sign the other person's name. They never have that. And if you look very carefully, the assessment procedure is totally fraudulent, and they're supposed to give you a hearing if you request it in writing. Now, I have yet to find one person that has gotten a hearing. They never give you the hearing, and then they make the assessment and put out all this money that you supposedly owe. But yet we go to Western Trading Company, in the very first paragraph it says, if the assessment is not properly done, the the tax is not deemed to be owing. And then we hold their feet to the fire on that and say, well, if the tax is not deemed to be owing, what about 26 U.S. Code Section 7214, which says it's a felony for you to make a false assessment or claim of a property against an individual taxpayer. Now, if I press this, you're going to get pulled out of the job until a review is made by the Congress. You're probably going to get fired. Now, do you want to go forward with this, or do you want to keep playing these fraudulent games? And almost always to a T, they back off. They walk Excellent away. Excellent strategy. Excellent. They Excellent strategy. bottom file. And okay, they get again until they put a new guy on that pile. Well, that's an excellent strategy. Uh, I compliment you for having that expertise in that area. Um, my my question to you would be would be would be this: How long of a time process are you dealing with, and uh, are you doing this for yourself? I do it for everybody. Five months. Okay. Okay. 
So you coach them and guide them through all this. And well, I mean, everybody's got a different approach to, to doing things. Uh, my goal is to, again, find pragmatic solutions. And you found one that you're very comfortable with. And so I applaud you and compliment you for your efforts. I mean, that's superb. And as long as you understand it and you can be successful with it, uh, if you're helping people, God bless you. Well, it's the truth. You understand? Just like you're trying to do the truth, and I compliment you on your intricate understanding of 26 U.S. Code. Even though I know the entire code has never been enacted into law, I also know the 16th Amendment was never enacted into law because the last state that was required to do it was Ohio. And see, when they did that Erie Canal, you remember that Erie Canal thing? When they disbanded the Erie Canal, they gave the property on the corner of Michigan and Indiana to a lot of soldiers were given 40 acres and a mule, okay? And a lot of those deeds that had to be transferred had to be transferred by the governor of Indiana because Ohio was not a state yet. So if Ohio wasn't a state when they passed the supposed 16th Amendment and that their governor couldn't even sign the release of the property that they had to go next door to Indiana to get that governor to, to do the deeds, and he was doing them on a yellow, yellow legal pad, you understand, right off the top of his desk, how, therefore, could the 16th Amendment have ever been lawfully ratified in time to have been able to be implemented as law? Well? It wasn't. That's another problem that they keep quoting. No, well, correct correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought President Taft was from Ohio. Yeah, he was, but it wasn't a state. And when he when he wrote the legislative intent, it was 1909. Okay, I'm not matter. I'm not questioning. It, I'm just trying to Look understand. Look up the Erie Canal, and you'll see that all of the deeds were written by the governor of Indiana. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, Bill Benson, Bill Benson and a bunch of others have, have pushed the same idea. And, uh, again, it's it's probably very valid. I don't have any issue with that. It's just oh. that you got to take they, the path of least they, resistance to accomplish what you're trying to do, make it simple as possible. But, see, they rely on this as law, and it's not. And that's the unfortunate thing, and we're just supposed to believe that. And, and, well, you're the IRS. You'd have to know what's going on. They don't have a clue, trust me, because when you bring all this stuff up in court, they'll say, well, the 16th Amendment isn't really the issue. Really? What's the issue then? That's what you're telling me you're using for your authority to have this whole tax game. Yeah. It's the 16th Amendment. They tell you yeah. it was Ohio wasn't a state, so they couldn't have possibly ratified it, and then the two-thirds majority last vote. You see that? Yeah. Okay. Now, anything that right. that's what do. That's what I'm going to do. All right, good comment. You, you really got your act together on that. Okay, we have one more. Okay. Um, let's see here, Northern Virginia, go ahead. And this is the last question. We're over the okay, two-hour mark. Hi. All right, I just wanted to ask um, just a couple questions about the revocation of election. Um, number one, Adele, have you done it or your crew, have you guys done it? And when you submit this revocation of election, what response or what can you expect to get from the IRS? Do they give you a certificate? Do they audit you? I mean, what do you, what happens once you file this? <laughs> okay, very good question, and I'll give you an honest answer. Yes, our whole staff has done it, um, and we did it uh, several years ago, of course, and we've had no issue whatsoever. Um, and, you know, it, at some point uh, – you know, people expect to get a document back from the IRS. I know that's what they're thinking, but 
if you can imagine this day and time, if, if the IRS sent you a greetings and salutations, congratulations, <laughs> you figured out how to get out of the mess we've created, that would go viral in a New York minute over the Internet. And then there would be a lot of headhunters going after the congressmen, I'm sure, and senators. You would have a new, uh, a new revolution going on. But the reality is they don't have to say anything because they have basically said what they've done. And if you look at it in the proper context, they, and I know this is hard to swallow, but they've been gentlemen about it. In other words, they've basically said, hey, you're not liable, but we're going to give you this information, and hopefully you will persuade yourself via our propaganda to induce you, and we will permit or allow you to join our tax club voluntarily. And if you do that, then we will steal from you, we will take your money, and we will treat you and abuse you any way we choose. Okay, there's no warning label on this making the election process, okay? There's nothing that warns you about what you're getting into. But they have to give you the exit door because if they did not, again, in my opinion, the 13th Amendment would come into play and you could sue the national government for slavery. So they have to allow you to leave, and that is exactly what the U.S. Congress has done. Now, they have not made it easy because a lot of the corporations, if you're working for a company, um, they don't know about any of this. If you go to a local IRS office, they don't know any of this about the revocation of election. And guess what? They're trained to collect taxes, not to know the law. So you have to go to the proper locations, get this stuff processed correctly, and we do that for you. And we'll get you along that line so that you will accomplish your objective, be free from it, and Again, we've not had any issue whatsoever. And our clients to date, the biggest problem they're having at times when it occurs is with their employer trying to get them to understand that they don't have any liability and they don't have to fill out a Form W-4, which is a tax class 5 form, that tries to keep them in the system because they can't participate. Once you leave, the government says you can't ever come back. You're gone. You're done. All right? And once you're free of that... These company payroll departments and stuff, they just have a hard time understanding it. So this is something relatively new in that context versus the status quo that has been ingrained in them, and I call them the Flat Earth Society members. They still believe the Earth is flat, if you will. And in regard to taxes, the presumptions are every American is a taxpayer. And as an American, if you're out of the system, you still pay taxes. You pay sales tax, you pay gasoline tax, you pay all the other stuff because you're consuming products that have excise taxes on them. That's fine. If you buy a shirt or a blouse or tennis shoes or blue jeans, you're going to pay a tax on some of that. But you don't have to pay it if you don't want it. That's right. You don't have to buy the product. So there's a big difference in, in that type of excise or indirect tax versus what we're talking about with the government is trying to skirt this direct tax and bring you into their jurisdiction so that all their statutes and laws apply to you, even though, as the Constitution man said, they're not codified. They're not been enacted into law, Title 26. And so it's, it's a real interesting journey through this process. If you want to major in all this stuff, God bless you. But to me, yep. I want to keep it simple. That's our goal is to help people and keep it simple. If you keep it complex and convoluted, you know, most people are just going to fold up like a tent in a hurricane and go, you know, because just, there's just no time for most people to absorb all this. And so we're trying our best to help those who 
meet the criteria that we've outlined, our strict criteria, and we have services for those who are American nationals and they meet that qualifications, we're very happy to try to help them. Okay, but, and what uh, do you charge for the revocation of election? Uh, it's in euros because we live in Europe. It's 450 euros, and uh, it depends on the exchange rate of the U.S. dollar. Uh, it's like, uh, what is it, 1.6 or something? Like 600. It would be somewhere like close. Yeah, like yeah, if you do the exchange rate, somewhere like, like about that. 600. But it floats, I mean, and, and we hate to, to even do that, but, you know, we can't survive because all of our bills are in euros, and the dollar is so weak. Uh, it used to be very strong, and it wasn't an issue, but uh, you're going to see a lot of changes in the dollar right now coming up in the next three years in the U.S. You're going to see a lot of inflation, and then after 2017, I think, unfortunately, and listen, I could eat glass. I'm trying to use a crystal ball, so I'm not perfect on this, but I'm predicting a, a severe depression in the United States after 2017. And I, I trade foreign currencies, and you know, it's just one of these things that, makes my stomach turn because I can't believe it. All my forecasting models are telling me that that's what's going to happen. And I would love to be wrong. I hope I am wrong. I don't wish this on anybody, but it's going to be more severe than the 1930s if it does happen. But you just can't keep going into debt the way you're doing and spending trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And the dollar is virtually worthless. I mean, it's, it's true fiat currency, and it will go back to its intrinsic value, which is zero. Right. Um, so, the one last uh, question that I had for you, Adele, is sure. um, I heard you say that once you are out, you are out. And so does that mean that you do not get, you do not submit any IRS forms, like to start a company to get an EIN number for a business or a trust once you do your revocation of election? Okay, now you must understand that if you're dealing with federal franchises, if you're dealing with treasury bonds, treasury bills, or any of that other stuff, then you have got yourself where you have a taxable liability. Now, most people don't have those issues, okay? So if we're just talking about you working for XYZ company or you've got your own private business, and you're fine. But if you start getting yourself tied up into legal fictions like subchapter C or subtitle, I'm tired, I'm sorry. But anyway, these subchapter C stuff, if you get into these LLCs and all this other stuff, those are instruments that keep you tied down to the system. And the, the easiest way to do something like that is to make them zero at the end of the tax year so that the, the whole idea is using them as a pass-through to you who has no federal income tax liability according right. to the U.S. Congress. That's the whole idea behind it. But anytime you use their legal fictions and stuff like that, you're going to expose yourself, and you have to structure it properly. Now, your accountants will argue with you. They will not agree and so forth, and they have a vested interest in their position, and that's to be respected. But the reality is you have to understand the law. You have to get educated, and we will help you understand if you want to move forward. But the key is you have to do your part too. Got it. Revocation so of election, once it's filed to the proper places, you guys will help whoever's interested, tell them where it needs to be sent and how it needs to be sent. It yes, and we will. For the we, current year, not previous years. It's not non-proton, but for the current year. Yes, the current year right now is still 2013 until April 15. But, but I have meetings scheduled all across Europe. I've got 
nine already scheduled, speaking with groups of American nationals living over here that want to move forward on this. And so I've already had one presentation this week, and we will have more. And then we're moving into a larger group going back to the banks to open up accounts and bypass this whole Foreign Account Transaction Compliance Act issues that they're having problems with banking in Europe. So your key is, though, if you get this ROE done before April 15th, and I would encourage you not to wait that long, please, because, you know, things just get pushed, and if you don't get the thing stamped properly or something delays it, you'll miss the year 2013. But once you get covered for 2013, let's just say you did it in the next 30 days, um, then you would have that year covered for any tax liabilities. Now, you can't reach back and bring the money that you paid in. I mean, that's a gift of request according to 31 U.S.C. 321 D1 D2. So the Treasury Department says it's a gift, and once you give to United Way, you can't ever say it's my money because you gifted it to them. So when you gift it to the national government, it's theirs. It's not your money, okay? But you can stop that insult. You can stop that participation in the U.S. tax club. And the U.S. Congress has said this, not me, okay? Fabulous. So, Thank you so, so much. You're very welcome. I would urge you, if you're thinking about doing it, to think about covering this year but it's your choice to what you want to do. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you for calling and, and asking your questions. Those were good. Thank you, Adele. It's been a pleasure as always. Now you can go get some sleep and we'll catch up with you again. Oh, but let's not wait a year. Let's, let's do okay. it. <laughs> okay. All okay. right. Thank you so much for your time and energy and, and your knowledge and information. We Thank appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. All right. Good night, then. Good night. All right, everybody. It's been a great call. Um, I hope you all have a good weekend. We'll see you again on next Thursday. Um, and don't forget, Carl Lentz's call is on Saturday. Let's see. Dave Mack is on Monday. Uh, Divine Mind Group is on Sunday. Um Take a look at the talks you guide on the website, myprivateaudio.com, and uh, catch up on your favorite talks you call. Um, Adele's website is also posted on the, our website on Thursday and also under guest speakers. Uh, his website is um, weissparis.com, W-E-I-S-S. P-A-R-I-S dot com. If you want to contact him, also check out his resources page. He's got a lot of good information there. And um, onward and upward, I always say. Take care of each other. I love you. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.